Welcome to the History of the World podcast. My name is Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 2, The Ancient World. This is Episode 8, The Siege of Lachish. Tell Lakish is an archaeological site in the Shefela region of the modern country of Israel. It is a mound which is evident by the word Tell in its name. The historical city at this site was called Lakish and it was the site of a famous siege which took place in 701 BCE. The siege was conducted by the Assyrian Empire and it was imposed on the city which belonged to the Kingdom of Judah. The location itself was very important, second only to Jerusalem in the Kingdom of Judah. Settlement of this place is believed to have started during the Pottery Neolithic, which is after the pre-Pottery Neolithic. So we're going back into prehistory, and certainly more than 7,000 years ago. Now, the Siege of Lachish was less than 3,000 years ago, so let's explore how it developed. By around 5,000 BCE, the area would have certainly been exposed and introduced to ceramic pottery. Metallurgy, particularly of the Chalcolithic Age, and megalithic construction, probably as a means to worship deities. The Proto-Syrian period of the Levant corresponds to the Early Bronze Age, and it is during this period that we can see the development of a Bronze Age settlement at Tel Lachish. This appears to have developed in the typical fashion for most settlements in the Fertile Crescent, as the settlement steadily grew throughout the Proto-Syrian period from around 3100 BCE. We often see people of the Levant referred to as Canaanites which is a biblical term for the area of the Levant. Canaanite peoples are perhaps, unsurprisingly, a Semitic peoples, and many of the cultures of the region at this time are now typically referred to as Canaanite. The Neo-Sumerians of the Third Dynasty of Or, which was mentioned in episode 3, were the first major empire to have laid claim 
to subjugate the Canaan region, including the settlement of Lachish. And this would have been in the 21st century BCE. However, the Neo-Sumerian Empire fell in 2004 BCE and the Canaan region would disappear into obscurity. We don't really know a lot about Canaan, that is more or less the region of the modern world which contains Israel, Lebanon and Palestine for the next 500 years until the emergence of the new kingdom of Egypt in the 15th century BCE when we can see Canaan mentioned as an Egyptian province in documents and particularly in the Amarna letters which represent correspondence between Egyptian administrators and their Canaanite representatives. Lachish in particular is mentioned in these letters and this is indeed a time when Lachish prospered and its population and area grew. Professor David Asushkin is an Israeli archaeologist born in Jerusalem in 1935. He was an administrator of the excavation of Tel Lachish between 1973 and 1994 and he published the following observations of Lachish's early period. Lachish grew into a very important centre. It was a large and rich royal city protected by massive fortifications and with a huge palace at its centre. It was one of the most important Canaanite city-states and was dominated by Egyptian pharaohs who subjugated Canaan for long periods during the late 2nd millennium BCE. We know that this great city was destroyed during the 12th century BCE. We don't really know who did it, but it was around the same time as the late Bronze Age collapse, so much as we could point the finger at the Israelites, we could just as easily point the finger at Sea Peoples. Those Sea Peoples that we are very aware of that settled the Mediterranean coastline nearest to Lachish were the Philistines. Lachish was left abandoned for two centuries. After this, things are a little bit mysterious, but these days we can often use the Hebrew Bible as a historical reference because archaeological excavations demonstrate that a lot of biblical stories can be substantiated to differing degrees. So if we believe the Bible, then we can assume that going into the 10th century BCE, there was a land called the United Monarchy of Israel which stretched from the homelands of the Arameans in the north all the way down to the Judean border with Edom in the south. It could have been during this period that the Israelites rebuilt Lachish, as well as the construction of a significant settlement at nearby Jerusalem. This united monarchy split during the course of the 10th century BCE, and the southern portion would be recognised as the Kingdom of Judah, and it would contain both Jerusalem and Lachish. After possibly being dealt another good hiding by the Egyptians, Lachish was in need of some proper fortifications, which the Judeans would build during the 9th century BCE. 
A new royal palace was built within these fortifications too. Over time, the Judeans would become more distant from the Israelites to their north and during the 8th century BCE it appears that the Judeans actually supported the Assyrians in their invasions of Israel. This leads us up to the approximate period which we intend to discuss today. The Assyrians At some point the Assyrians had to turn on the Judeans after the Judeans supported them in their invasions of Israel. So why would the Assyrians do that? Let's recap what we know about the Assyrians going into this period of history. Assyria started out as a small city-state in northern Mesopotamia, centred on the city of Ashur, and we can believe that these people were Semitic speakers. Originally, the cities of this region acted as trade route settlements for these empires and kingdoms of southern Mesopotamia. We believe that Ashur was named after the city's deity, Ashur, and this is also the root of the name Assyria. At the very end of the 3rd millennium BCE, southern Mesopotamia fell into a state of unrest and Assyria was allowed to blossom as an independent entity. Before 1800 BCE, Shamshi-Adad took the Assyrian throne before Hammurabi of the Amorite Babylonians conquered Assyria, but this did not last and even though Shamshi-Adad was initially regarded as a usurper, his family line would ultimately be regarded as ancestors of the Assyrian royal house. A Hurrian-speaking empire called the Mitanni emerged to the west in the 15th century BCE and subjugated their Assyrian neighbours. However, this did not last long. Assyria had no long-term desire to be a vassal state of the Mitanni and early in the 14th century BCE, it used political means to initially come out of the shadows of the Mitanni before overthrowing the Mitanni completely and subjugating them to Assyria, completely reversing the roles and ending the Mitanni Empire. It was from here that Assyria started becoming a serious Near East Empire, constantly attempting to keep Kassite Babylonia in its shadow and worrying the mighty empires of the Hittites and the Egyptians enough that they would formulate a peace treaty ending years of hostility with each other. Just to present a united defence against the ever more powerful Assyrian Empire. Everybody was attempting to impose sanctions on the Assyrians to prevent them from becoming too dominant. However, the Assyrians would still defeat the Hittites in battle and conquer Babylon and defeat the Elamites. At the time of the late Bronze Age collapse, the Hittites disappeared but the Assyrians remained. However, the Assyrians would eventually get pinned back to their key cities while Aramean peoples moved into areas formerly under Assyrian control by around 1020 BCE. The Assyrians survived in part thanks to their expert warriors which made the core of Assyria impenetrable. 
the Neo-Assyrian Empire emerged from this core from around 911 BCE. It would initially be the Assyrian king Ashurnazirpal II who would subjugate much of the Levant and it would be his great-grandson Adad-Nirari III who would conquer the Israelis. This brings our Assyrian story into the 8th century BCE. The Kingdom of Judah The city of Lachish was in the Kingdom of Judah, so a siege of Lachish would be a siege against the Judeans. Who were the Judeans? The best source to find this out has to be the Hebrew Bible, otherwise called the Tanakh, and otherwise known as the Old Testament of the Christian Bible. Now, many years ago, this would have been regarded as a bad source, as the Bible began to be considered as a book of myth and legend. However, archaeology is showing that the Bible, although literally questionable, is very likely based on many factual events. The fact is that there is very little archaeological evidence of a kingdom of Judah before the time in question. It is by reference to the Hebrew Bible that we can recognise a united monarchy of Israel and Judah which may have emerged sometime during the 9th to the 8th century BCE. One of the books of the Hebrew Bible is the book of Joshua and it suggests that the tribe of Judah was part of an Israelite movement which successfully secured Canaanite lands by the 12th century BCE. After David became the king of Judah, the rest of the Israelite tribes would come to recognise David as their king too, which would lead to the formation of the united monarchy of Israel again. Solomon would take over from his father David as the king of the united monarchy, but after Solomon's death, the kingdom broke into two, as the northern tribes would become simply the kingdom of Israel and the southern tribes would become the kingdom of Judah. Everything else about the history of Judah is quite contentious, with very little archaeological evidence and only the questionable biblical story to go by. However, it would be reasonable to suppose that the kingdom emerged and became more powerful from the 10th century BCE onwards. Hezekiah So we will assume that the Hebrew Bible is correct and that the kingdom of Judah emerged from a united monarchy of Israel after the death of Solomon during the 10th century BCE. Its capital city was Jerusalem and Lachish was another very important city. Many kings ruled over Judah over the years until we come to the year 715 BCE where we find Hezekiah taking the throne. We will take a bit of a guess based on what we know from the Hebrew Bible. We believe that Hezekiah may have been born in around 739 BCE when his grandfather Jotham was the king of Judah. Hezekiah's parents were the queen 
Abijah, and her husband, the man who would succeed his own father as the king of Judah in around 732 BCE, Ahaz. The patrilineal ancestry of Jesus in the Gospel according to Matthew of the Christian Bible names Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah in his line. Ahaz is portrayed as a bit of a sacrilegious king, choosing not to put his faith in the Lord and more to gain the kindness of the mighty Assyrian king Tiglath-Pileser III, who had crushed Damascus and Israel after Ahaz decided not to support them in their revolt against Assyria. Hezekiah was possibly in his twenties when he ascended to the throne of Judah in around 715 BCE. Hezekiah was unlike his father in that he promoted the worship of God. The Bible describes him as a good king. Hezekiah is accredited with a battle victory over the Philistines, potentially showing some military prowess, but he is also shown to be the opposite of his father Ahaz, in that he worshipped God and that he was not so keen on Assyrians. Sennacherib So we've introduced the city of Lachish and discussed its history. We have spoken of the Assyrians who were responsible for the siege of the city. We have spoken of the Judeans whose territory was the home of the city of Lachish and we've introduced Hezekiah who was the king of the Judeans. Now let's discover who was the king of the Assyrians going into this vital period. Tiglath-Pileser III had caused devastation to Judah's neighbours during his reign as the Assyrian king, but it would be his son, Sargon II, who would actually conquer Israel and bring it under Assyrian rule. Many Israelites were deported from Israel, and this was a typical Assyrian tactic in order to quell future rebellions. This is supported by the story of the ten lost tribes, which can be found in the second book of Kings in the Hebrew Bible, and also by the Assyrian capture of Ashdod in the book of Isaiah, pinpointed by historians to have taken place in around 711 BCE. In 705 BCE, Sargon II was killed on campaign, and the throne would pass to his son, Sennacherib. Sennacherib would inherit an incredibly strong Assyria, with its capital at Nineveh. Initially, Sennacherib's reign would require him to go directly to Babylon and appease a situation there. No surprise there to hear of an Assyrian king having a problem with Babylon. After this, Sennacherib would have to turn his attention west as things were stirring in the Levant. Sennacherib's campaign in Judah So the scene is set. We have Sennacherib in charge of the Assyrians who are looking to keep the kingdoms of the Levant under their control. One of those kingdoms is Judah, whose king is Hezekiah. And Hezekiah 
did not like being a subject to the Assyrians, so much so that he stopped paying tribute to the Assyrians, and this would anger the Assyrian king Sennacherib, who would campaign to Hezekiah's Judah in 701 BCE. Sennacherib's army was considerable. We previously described the typical Assyrian army of this time in the last episode. This was the Iron Age and the Assyrians were well known for their familiarity with iron. Foot soldiers would comprise of archers with iron-tipped arrows accompanied by shield-bearers and slingers. There would also be mounted cavalry and horse-drawn chariots. This army would be accompanied by skilled engineers who would be able to build siege engines and earthworks. Precisely what happened next is a little bit sketchy thanks to the sources we have available. We are somewhat familiar with there being holes to pick in the Bible, most likely due to the fact that biblical texts seem to have been written by more than one author, causing texts to be questionable. Sennacherib's annals are inscribed in the Akkadian language on clay prisms using cuneiform writing. They also contain details of Sennacherib's campaigns. The Lakish reliefs offer yet another perspective on this campaign, this time using imagery. So this actually is an unprecedented amount of evidence for this period. The trick for us now is to ascertain the closest version of the truth. The Assyrian artefacts are likely to paint a very pro-Assyrian picture of events, while the biblical texts are far less likely to. What we can be sure of going into this campaign is that the Assyrians would have wanted to send a powerful message to Hezekiah and his kingdom of Judah, as was the typical aggressive and condescending tactic of the Assyrians against its less powerful neighbours. It should have been enough that the Assyrians had crushed the kingdom of Israel and disassembled its population within living memory. That alone should have acted as a strong deterrent to the Judeans wishing to revolt against Assyrian subjugation. But it appears that Hezekiah was encouraged by the attitudes of Babylon and Cushite Egypt towards the new Assyrian king Sennacherib. The Siege of Lachish So here we are. Hezekiah of Judah has decided to snub Assyria and refuse tribute. Sennacherib of Assyria was not about to stand for this and obviously needed to send a clear message to Judah and its neighbours, including the Phoenicians, the Philistines and the peoples of the kingdoms of Ammon, Moab and Edom. Lachish was one of many cities under Hezekiah's rule, but it would prove to be a formidable challenge with its high mud walls. Assyrian archers with accompanying slingers Cavalry and chariots were not going to get the job done here. So it came down to the Assyrian army engineers to come up with something that would breach 
the fortified city walls of Lakish. The engineers could have instigated a digging project to enable the army to slip under the walls or even destroy the foundations and bring the walls down. Another method would have been to develop ladders and send infantry armed with spears and swords to climb the walls. It appears that two alternative methods were favoured. Rather than ladders, an actual ramp was constructed out of rocks and earth that could act as a means to climb the city walls. It does appear that this project was accompanied by a siege tower, which was an absolute marvel of engineering. The siege tower was mounted on wheels so that two could be wheeled up the constructed ramp. The siege tower would be a means to attack, but it would also have its weaknesses. Archers and slingers would man the top of the tower in order to attack any poor unsuspecting defenders on the other side of the fence. The defenders would recognise that they would not only need to commission their own archers to attack the siege tower, but also that their arrows would need to turn into incendiary devices simply by dipping the arrows into flammable tar or pitch as it may otherwise be known. However, the siege engine would be prepared for this kind of attack by carrying water and damp hides to aid with the prevention of any fires completely destroying the siege tower. It is very likely that the Assyrian siege tower would have a large battering ram attached to it near its base. If we wish to be brutally honest about it, the Assyrian army was an expert army and large in numbers. The Judean city of Lachish would have been ready to defend itself, but the Assyrian army was serious business. So the Assyrians would use the mud ramp to enable its mobile siege tower to breach the city walls of Lachish and using its battering ram and defending itself with archers. Once the city walls were breached, the secondary wave of Assyrian infantry would be able to attack the city and its people. Bowmen would have stormed the city, protected by their individual shield bearers. Armoured spearmen would enter the city, armed with their own shields. The Judeans would have been ill-equipped to overcome the effectiveness of the highly trained and well-polished Assyrian military unit. The Assyrians would hunt down and murder the main officials of Lachish and would then set about rounding up the remaining citizens and deporting them across the empire in the time-honoured fashion. Lachish would end up defeated and abandoned. The Aftermath Sennacherib would set up camp in Lachish and would send his main army officials off to the Judean capital city of Jerusalem to ensure that King Hezekiah would get the message once and for all. Many Judean cities including Lachish had been captured and it was now time to capture the capital. However, despite the fall of Lachish, Hezekiah was not about to roll over and allow the Assyrians 
to win an easy victory. Hezekiah set about working on the defence of the city and it may well be that he actually built an aqueduct called the Siloam Tunnel to keep the water sources entering Jerusalem and possibly at the same time denying Assyrian army units outside the city from accessing the spring waters. Interestingly, an ancient tunnel does exist at Jerusalem. That could be the very same tunnel built by Hezekiah as described in the Hebrew Bible. There are one or two differing perspectives on this, but still it is yet another case which supports the fact that biblical sources should never be dismissed as having absolutely no foundation. Biblical sources do recognise the fact that Jerusalem was under siege and that Hezekiah was present at the city. The cuneiform clay prism, which we referred to as Sennacherib's annals, states that Sennacherib's army besieged Jerusalem and that Hezekiah was trapped there like a caged bird. This is a classic historian's nightmare that we will see time and time again throughout the podcast series. We often, as historians, hear the phrase, history is written by the winners. The Tanakh, or Hebrew Bible, or the Old Testament, will give us a very heroic account of Judea standing up against the overwhelming might of the Assyrians that had overcome so many other towns and peoples who could not be protected by their respective deities. According to these texts, Jerusalem was able to repel the besieging Assyrians, with 185,000 Assyrians being killed in the conflict. Sennacherib's annals claim victory for the mighty Assyrians and that Judea was conquered, although there is no evidence of Jerusalem falling and no evidence of Hezekiah being captured. The Hebrew Bible does take into account that Hezekiah did offer tribute at some point to Sennacherib, so maybe Hezekiah knew that the Assyrians were far too powerful to resist and that the only way to stop Jerusalem falling and its population being extinguished either by mass slaughter or deportation was to turn submissive. It would have been likely the only way to prevent Jerusalem suffering the same fate as Lachish. So Judah was now governed by the ever-growing Assyrian Empire. Judah survived, but now only as a vassal state of Assyria. Possibly as many as 200,000 Jews were exiled and maybe as many as 46 Judean settlements were destroyed. Nothing much changed regarding the relationship between Assyria and Judah during the lifetime of these two kings after Sennacherib's campaign in Judah. Hezekiah survived for another 15 years and during this time he apparently miraculously survived a boil which was initially diagnosed as one that would cause Hezekiah's death. 
various ambassadors came from miles around to congratulate Hezekiah on his recovery. It's clear to see that the writer of the second book of Kings liked Hezekiah, who apparently was a king of a small kingdom who rebelled against Assyria and was crushed for it. His biggest victory being against his boil. Sennacherib would consolidate his Assyrian Empire, the mightiest empire to grace planet Earth, with the most formidable army. However, some 20 years after the Judean campaign, it appears that Sennacherib was assassinated in his capital city of Nineveh, and that a battle ensued between his many sons for the throne of Assyria. This is another thing we see time and time again with monarchies all around the world. The monarch would start becoming elderly and the sons would become impatient and push for their opportunity to become the monarch themselves, even at the expense of their siblings and even their own father. Some have claimed that Sennacherib's death was a divine punishment for his destruction of Babylon. However, it could be much more realistic to suggest that Sennacherib was simply bumped off by one of his own sons, eager to take the throne for himself. It would ultimately be the disunity of the sons of a future king of Assyria, Ashurbanipal, that would give the Medians and the Babylonians the opportunity to strike at the heart of the Assyrian Empire and destroy it less than a hundred years after the Judean campaign. Judah would pass into the hands of the Assyrians' conquerors, the Babylonians. Judah would revolt against its Babylonian overlords and in around 589 BCE, the powerful king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar II, captured Jerusalem and organised its total destruction. The city was plundered the elite population were deported, Solomon's temple was destroyed and the kingdom of Judah was no more. The siege of Lachish is just one small siege and one particular time and one particular place. So why on earth would we devote an entire podcast episode to this seemingly random event in the doubtless thousands of city sieges of the ancient world? Lachish is special for the fact that it ties archaeological reliefs to cuneiform accounts and that these in turn tie in with biblical writings. It teaches us about the might and the relentlessness of the Assyrians. It teaches us about the advanced military technology of the 8th century BCE Near East. It teaches us to read historical accounts with caution and to bear in mind that writers had political motivations for their work. Imagery was commissioned as a celebration of victory so it may not need to demonstrate anything negative about the aggressors. It also demonstrates how historical events can be used to suggest that united struggles of a peoples such as the Jews can suggest that bravery and unity is and has always been in their blood for many, many centuries 
and this doubtlessly is the motivation of the biblical writings promoting the bravery of this small Jewish kingdom and its king. Lachish is a crossroads of many things that remind historians what it is to be fair and objective as a historian and therefore deserves to be recognised respectfully as we have hopefully done during the course of this podcast episode. Next time on the History of the World podcast, we are going to stay in the Levant and look at that initially small culture of people that will ultimately give us a strong link to the classical world. They are the Phoenicians. Thank you very much for listening to this week's special battle podcast. And uh, I'd also like to thank uh, over 200 new listeners who listened to the very first episode of the History of the World podcast for the very first time this week. To be honest with you, I don't know why I'm thanking them to think that they've listened to all 40 podcasts by now if they've only listened to Volume 1, Episode 1 this week is probably a little bit out there so um, probably not listening right now but hopefully at some point they'll listen to this one and they'll know that I thank them. I'd also like to thank uh, some patrons for the uh, History of the World podcast. The first patrons that we've had that are sponsoring the podcast now contributing towards the upkeep of the podcast. Thank you so much. Every bit of your generosity really helps. Thank you to Jared Paulus, uh, to Karen Pleschutznig, and to Matty Yokimo. So I hope I've pronounced all your names correctly, and I'd like to really sincerely thank you um, from the bottom of my heart for your generosity and your assistance. A couple of emails sent in. One's from uh, Jerome Rickerink. I'm sorry, I really that was a tricky name for me. Jerome Rickerink, and uh, he's put. I have discovered your podcast quite recently. I'm a history teacher from the Hague, Netherlands. During my two-hour commute, that's a long commute, by bicycle. Wow, brilliant. Um, I listen to your podcast. After teaching for 23 years, I know a thing or two about history, and I must say you tie it all together really nicely. Every episode teaches me something new that I did not know before, and I regularly use information that I got from one of your podcasts in my classes. So thank you very much. You make my classes better. By the way, I love your accent. Um, I'm really getting a cult following for my accent. I don't don't know how that's come about. Um, It's absolutely wonderful that um, teachers are are finding something of value in this podcast. And um, fantastic. I'm I'm really honoured and pleased. Thank you so much for the message. Another email from Joel McKinnon. Uh, Hi Chris, I am stone cold addicted to your podcast after six episodes, having always been fascinated by ancient history, particularly the Near East and Greece. I've lately been reading back even further into prehistory, been reading uh, Cyprian Broodbank's The Making of the Middle Sea, a grand synthesis of the history of the Mediterranean from the earliest hominin incursions, through about 500 BC 
E and the mysteries of the pre-human migrations absolutely fascinated me. Was thinking of starting a podcast of my own. Do it, do it. <laughs> but your excellent podcast has probably spared me the trouble. The truth is that there is so much more to be fascinated by than just the migrations of these early peoples and you've inspired me to think deeply about things like the earliest tool making and communication and what truly separates us from other animals. The most remarkable thing is that this separation occurred long before humans, as you well know, and makes for a fuzzy boundary with other existing primates and possibly other creatures with whom we share this planet. Bravo for a great podcast and I look forward eagerly to devouring future episodes. Um, it says also, by the way, I have an audio drama podcast at planetandsky.com forward slash podcast, a nine episode exploration of a rock opera I composed and performed on. If that sounds interesting to you, please check it out. I just recently turned it into a YouTube playlist and uh, I, um, yeah, we, there you go. Look, I've advertised it to the, to the entire community now. So hopefully everyone will have a look and uh, thanks for a very well thought out and presented email. Um, I, there's a lot of interesting points in there, which I'm sure will not just feed the grey matter for me, but of our listeners as well. So thank you for the email, Joel. Angela Constance, who's um, a Member of Parliament for the Scottish National Party, has, has tweeted, for those of you who are interested in ancient history, particularly the Near East, I can re recommend Volume 2 of the History of the World podcast and the History of Persia podcast. Let me know about any... Uh, podcast that you have enjoyed thank you Angela thanks for that recommendation and then also the history of Persia there there's another one out there that can be interesting I might well start a page of recommended podcasts so that we can put all these other podcasts in one place just Joel um, put on Twitter early humans brains got bigger when they started butchering meat because of how much less energy went into digestion and could instead be used for brain growth that has led to this modern vegetarian sending a morning tweet. What a universe. Thanks, History of the World podcast. Well, that's, uh, that's an absolute irony, isn't it? But thank you so much for the tweet. Uh, Matty Yokimo, one of our patrons who I mentioned earlier, uh, actually ordered the History of the World book um, edited by John Whitney Hall, who unfortunately is no longer with us. And he's put, it finally arrived, damaged, but we'll deal with that tomorrow. Thanks, History of the World podcast, for recommending this in an earlier episode. Seems like solid archive. I'll tell you what, it's, uh, it's like I think I said in an earlier podcast, it has to be probably the most impressive history book that I've got on my bookshelf. Now, one thing I've discovered, I often read out the uh, the iTunes reviews as well that we've received, just out of respect for those who bothered to send them. Um, so, uh, But what I've discovered is that I've only been reading out the ones on the, the American iTunes website, and uh, I didn't realise that they all got split apart into their into their relevant countries. So I found a way to collate them all, and I'm going to try and catch up with those who've sent messages in the past, so I'll give you a mention. Uh, first one is nickname nickname 01010 from the USA. 
as per absolutely fantastic this podcast is incredibly well researched it is presented very academically focusing on the facts it is fantastic and i cannot recommend it enough uh from golan shahar from israel uh, a great podcast this podcast is educational and entertaining only problem with it is having to wait for the next episode yet yeah, i think that validates this idea that we're going to have to create a website page of uh, other podcasts that are very much well worth listening to. Um, looking down, um, we've got Safira 80 uh, from the USA. If you love ancient history, this is for you. My new favourite history podcast host is excellent and scripting is spot on. Thank you ever so much for that. And then looking down, uh, we've got uh, Lou Reed 5 from Australia. Uh, enthralling listen, wide scope, wonderful podcast. Superb co- podcast. Hazler is up there with the likes of Duncan or Crowther. Excellent presentation and well-researched. Looking forward to seeing where this podcast goes. Well, look, I mean, that is that is hot company to be mentioned in the same sentence as... Um, Mike Duncan presents the History of Rome podcast. David Crowther presents the History of England podcast, both of which are excellent pieces of work. So to be compared to them is an absolute honour, I suppose. Thank you. Um, Going on from that, um, we've got... uh, Oh, the wonderful Collie Green from the UK. Uh, I never realised she wrote this review back in November. Easily listening and entertaining. I'm really enjoying this podcast. Well done. I think you, you sent me another message on Facebook, which I read out. So I'm glad um, I'm glad. ultimately I've not ignored you, Collie. Thanks for your support. Um, Mandy5066 from Australia. Great topics. Really well presented. I love the subject matter, the origins of mankind. It's so interesting. And this podcast is really well researched and presented. The pace is really good too. There's a lot covered each episode, but it's not an information overload. The podcast also presents the doubts and debates on various issues, which shows integrity and thoroughness. Really great work. And then the last one, uh, Actech 18 from Australia, put great and very educational podcast. I find this podcast very educational, interesting and very grateful for that. Lots of things to learn, well narrated. I have to admit that I need to listen to some episodes several times, not only because I cannot get it from the first attempt, but also I do enjoy the way it is presented. Recommend for anyone interested in history, archaeology, or just out of curiosity. Thank you. Well, what a lot of messages to get through, and uh, but I'm glad I've done it. It's uh, ever so kind when you send me a message, and I do like to give it the attention that it deserves. And um, by and large, they're all very positive, and I'm very grateful for that. So thank you so much to everyone that's taken the time to get in touch and um, by all means keep getting in touch ask me anything i'll be happy to answer any questions um over the podcast airwaves just uh, hit me with it it's not a problem um anyway that's it for this week and uh, next week we're going to be moving on to the phoenicians and uh, their subsequent carthaginians as well which uh, which sort of derived from the phoenician trading in the Mediterranean. So we're really touching on the classical age um, with next week's episode and uh, we will unavoidably be able be talking about the Romans. So we're really sort of um, getting deep into our history now. So exciting times. We look forward to next week. Thanks ever so much. Have a cracking week, everybody. See you next time. 
The History of the World podcast is available on many different podcast platforms. So please don't forget to rate and review us wherever you find us. Visit our website at historyoftheworldpodcast.com and email us at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. Support the podcast at Patreon by clicking the support the podcast link at our website and join us on social media at Facebook, Twitter and Tumblr.